0: Without doubt, one topic that I find more fascinating than virtually any other is the field of neuroscience. And this week, I was really excited to be joined by Chris DeMayer, neuroscientist and research fellow at King's College London. One of Chris's interests lies in the area of belief. And by that he means how our brain decides that certain ideas are true while rejecting other ideas as false. Chris also studies how entrenched belief systems invariably lead to polarization in society from such crucial topics as climate change and Brexit. Chris is also a documentary maker and co-produced with Sheila Marshall the film Right Between Your Ears, a study of Harold Camping and his followers whose interpretation of the Bible led them to the certainty that the world would end on May the 21st 2011. I love this conversation and think you will too. I'm Steve Lazarus and this is Your London Legacy. I've got a special offer for you. Regular listeners to the podcast will know that at the end of each interview, we ask our guests to tell us one or two of their favorite places in London that is personal to them and perhaps not everybody knows about. Well, I've now compiled for you 60 of my guests' favorite places in London, and you can get this unique brochure 100% free. Alongside each guest recommendation is a brief quote explaining why they love the place, a lovely picture of it, plus links to the venue, and the podcast episode itself so you can check it out in your own time. It's completely free and all you have to do is go to www.yourlondonlegacy.com on the home page and click on the red button where it says Guests, Favourite Places in London, click here for your free copy. I hope you enjoyed as much as I did creating it for you. Keep listening, best wishes and keep safe. Steve. Well, I'm delighted to say today I am joined by... Chris Mayer. I, I always ask all my guests if I've pronounced the name correctly, and yours is going to be no exception, Chris, because it's, um, it looks an obvious spelling and pronunciation, but have I got it correct? You've got it correct, yes. I've got it correct. Fantastic. So, Chris de Mayer is a neuroscientist working at uh, King's College London. Are you you a fellow at king's college fellows fellow researchers a research fellow research fellow a research fellow i get it the right way around so research fellow so what is the topic what is your area of speciality chris so
1: i do a lot of things but one of the things that interests me most is studying and and looking at how people form beliefs and how we come to think that our view of the world is the right view and other people's view is wrong. And that kind of interest was sparked in, in sort of the mid-2000s when I was, or early 2000s when I was doing, I started doing a PhD and, and it was the same time that sort of the internet was starting to emerge and proto-social media was starting to emerge. And as I was doing my research in neuroscience, I was also a lot on websites and a lot on uh, common boards and message boards of newspapers. And I started to see that people were sort of ending up in, in fights with each other and, and, and disagreeing with each other. And at first, I was taking part in these discussions about important things. We had 9-11 um, and the invasion of Iraq at that time were, were hot-button issues at that moment. And so I was really first taking part in those discussions. And then the more I was seeing people violently disagreeing with each other, the more I started to think of it through the lens of what I was doing as a neuroscientist, which is trying to understand how brains work. And that took a few years before it came together. But sort of towards the end of 2000s, of the 2000s of the noughties, it did become a topic of interest for me scientifically to look at these debates and rather than taking part in them i was following them and i was trying to make sense of why is it that people are disagreeing with each other how are they disagreeing with each other how do they think about one another when they are on opposing ends of of uh uh, big debates in society
0: how did you get into this area in the first place of neuroscience what what were you doing at the time that That led you to narrow down, narrow your focus down into this area of um, belief, belief systems?
1: That's an interesting question. So when I got into neuroscience, it wasn't a field as it is now, because now you can do a degree in neuroscience, and you can get into it through that way. But when I became interested in it, I came from engineering, from an electronic engineering background. And that's not unusual, because the brain is an electrical organ, there's a lot of currents flowing through our brains at any moment in time, and also the tools that people were developing to study what goes on in the brain were full of high-end electronics and and relied on on clever physics to to see what what goes on inside our brains as we are thinking. Um, So one of my friends back in the day said, neuroscience, that's not really a field. That's one-third engineers, one-third psychologists, and one-third biologists. And none of them understand one another. So perhaps my interest in people disagreeing or not understanding each other actually started from those early days when I was also in that professional role, uh, made aware of people's different outlooks on the world and, and different ways of thinking about the same problem.
0: Mm. So it was never your intention, shall we say, to get involved in this area. You you were going down the road of becoming a what? What sort of engineer were you? Tra- were you training to be an engineer of some description, a mechanical or electrical, or what sort of engineer were you?
1: So it was electronics, and and it was from electronics. Electronic. It was pretty normal for people to sort of get sucked into AI at the time and and machine what is now called machine learning, uh, artificial intelligence. And, and that was my way in, basically. And then I did a PhD in something called cybernetics, which doesn't really exist anymore these days, but uh, it's it's a, a field of study from the 1940s that had actually brought together people from coming out of the war effort, uh, scientists and experts who had worked together during the war effort and, and founded this field that looked at understanding what makes humans tick, basically. And, and that was popular throughout the 40s, 50s, 60s, and then it started to wane. But a lot of what we would now call neuroscience... Where did you study that? Um, that was at Reading University. Reading University,
0: yeah. Where, so where did you come from? What's your home, original home?
1: So I'm from Belgium originally, and I came to the UK uh-huh. in 99, and I went to Reading because I was thinking, that's close to London, and... I can actually go every weekend. I can go to London and I can enjoy London. Even Reading yeah. itself is in the most exciting place in the world. And then as soon as I was there, of course, it was really expensive to come into London. And on a, um, a student uh, stipend, you, you can't really uh, do much. So it wasn't that I was just living 20 minutes from London. It was, it was a different place and I could only come once in a while. And then when I finished my PhD, I said I'd quite like to stay in the UK, but only in London. Not I don't want to go anywhere else than London. So,
0: well, you're in the right place. Your London legacy is where we. It's all about people doing good things in London and living and living in London and studying in London and King's College London. No, no finer, no finer place to do your research. So you you, you said you got sucked into this world of people's views and what's right and what's wrong and the polarisation of different opinions. Was there a particularly defining moment and you thought, hang on a second, was it was it an online moment or was it during a conversation where you thought, how are views formed and why does this people believe that they are right and that whereas this person is clearly wrong?
1: There were a number of them and, and one of them was in the aftermath of nine eleven. Like the day after or something, I was on a message board and and there were lots of Americans on there and everyone was very hurt and and in in a lot of anger about what had happened uh, with the Twin Towers. And I remember saying something and people completely misunderstanding me. And that was one of those moments where I went like, how is it possible? that That's not what I said. I said something completely differently. And yet they're piling on top of me here for something that I didn't say. Yes. And and that was one of the Uh first ones. But there were several after, um, some to do with in the mid-2000s, you had a lot of online debates around a thing called creationism, which is where people thought that the theory of evolution, of biological evolution, as proposed by Darwin, isn't correct. And they had lots of other ways of explaining. Creationism isn't just one thing. It's many different theories where people think that uh, biological evolution is not true and these theories of creationism, of, of God creating in one form or another. And so there were lots of debates happening uh, online around that in those days and then in 2008 i think one other defining moment was uh climate change where a documentary had gone out on channel 4 that was um, very much on the side of the climate skeptics and that was one of the moments where i thought like oh this is really this documentary is very well put together it's very um, convincing, but at the same time, for me as a scientist, it's also very misleading. And that was one of the moments where I became involved and started to work on climate change as a, an issue that gets people divided and worked up and, and passionate on either side of the debate, whether it's happening, whether it's not happening, whether we should do something about it, whether we shouldn't do anything about it, etc., etc. et, cetera, et cetera.
0: So as a so as a neuro neuroscientist and correct me if I'm wrong you're not so much bothered as to as to which side is right or which side is wrong but as to why they form their opinion and how they validate their opinion and why they diverge in their opinions and then ha- have a go have a go at each other and and why people create fake news maybe or you know say factual information is fake to support their theories Yes. And, and why people polarize their views so much. That's you're more interested in 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 the the structure of the arguments and the beliefs than whether there's something's actually actually right or wrong.
1: Yes, in a sense I've got two two responses to that. And one is as a scientist, I'm interested in the mechanisms by which people try to prove themselves right, and the mechanisms by which we polarize and the mechanisms by which we convince ourselves. But then, of course, as a as a human being and as a citizen, I also care about individual topics. Like I had a position on Brexit as a European. You probably can guess what that one would would have been. (laughs) I I have a position on climate change. But what it often what my knowledge as a neuroscientist allows me to do is often detach myself from my own position. And and I can much more it's it's easier for me to say I know that that's my position but then I also know that other people have these other positions so it, it allows me to wear both hats at the same time in in a sense
0: so let's look at a, a very specific and very radical point of view and it's, it's it's a documentary that you made what was the year 2011 you made it or was it leading up was it just prior to that
1: we we started making it in twenty in two thousand and eleven, and and we only finished it in twenty fifteen because it took us a long time to get the funding and to, to oh wow it. So oh I didn't
0: know that so the documentary is, is is called and it's sort of double entendre I suppose right right between your ears mm-hmm. I didn't I didn't even pick up on that sort of double meaning <laughs> so it's being, being correct between your ears and also the idea the concept that it is between your ears where you form you form your opinion and your judgment. And it's all about, it's a documentary that you made, a brilliant documentary, all about this, um, this guy, correct me if I'm wrong, Harold Camping? Yeah, that's right. Who, who was head of this uh, radio station in America. Is it, was it Midwest America
1: where, where he was based? It was in California. Yeah. So, so he was the head no, in of- in
0: California. Okay. Yeah.
1: He was the head of Family Radio in California. And what made him special is that he thought that he had a date for the end of the world uh
0: which was the 21st well, he of may thought he was special and he, he, his, his followers thought he was special i think everyone else probably thought he was a bit of a loon
1: <laughs> yes
0: and, and but there we are diverging opinion already we've only just started go on carry on yeah
1: so so the in, indeed he he was very convinced that he knew um he and his followers knew the, the date for the end of the world 20 may of uh 2011 and When I came across this story, it was indeed someone saying on on a website, oh, look what these loonies are doing there. They're predicting the end of the world. But what attracted me to them was this idea that by that time, I was already interested in these debates. And what I had observed is that you could never pinpoint anyone on being wrong. Everyone was always, when they're fighting each other, There was never any killer arguments that would make one person say, oh, oh, maybe I was wrong. Maybe I should change my mind. And what these guys were doing is they were almost setting up like a scientific test of their own beliefs. They were saying, on this day, we're predicting that the rapture is going to happen and that a giant earthquake is going to destroy the world. And then it's going to be five months of carnage. And then on the 21st of October, it will all be finished. And, and that's a, almost like a scientific test of your own belief system. And when that date comes, you're going to find out and you're going to have to reckon with reality, not with someone disagreeing with you, but with reality. And that was what made them interesting to us because I thought we're now going to be able to, first of all, see how people can become convinced of something, but then also how you respond to a challenge to your deep beliefs one that you can't so easily wiggle from underneath because because the disconfirmation will be very direct and very concrete and at least that's what we were predicting would happen and we're still here so we know that there wasn't the rapture and and the earthquake but for them it was the disconfirmation was very strong and was very real and that gave us a unique opportunity to tell a story about how do we get a sense of feeling right in our beliefs? And also, how do we then deal with the opposite, with the feeling of being wrong?
0: What I find bizarre about the whole thing was that why would anyone in the first place want to study? I mean, in effect, what he did was study the Bible and break it down into analytical, scientific component days and weeks and months. And everything meant something to him and to his, his followers that led to this he created this series of arguments that led to a conclusion, which proved to be wholly erroneous, that the world was going to end on this particular day, May, May the 20, 21st, I think 2011. He, not only was that proved to be wholly wrong, but then he tried to backtrack on that by saying, well, I didn't actually quite say that necessarily. I said there was going to be a spiritual end on that date and that the world would physically end at some sometime in, in October but what what i don't get is why he why somebody would spend a good part of their life trying to trying to posit this argument and then come up with this theory and and propose this and then and then try and get people to believe it and then the other thing that i found quite odd was that he he got all these followers around him who were quite happy to follow his his theory that the world was going to end but they didn't seem to be slightly concerned about it at all none of them seemed to be very worried they seemed to almost to be very accepting of of the, the idea and almost celebrating it, which I found very odd.
1: There's a lot of questions rolled into one there, and, and I'll try to unpick them. Yeah. The first one is like, how, how did he get into this? It was 50 years of slowly drifting in that direction. And in the documentary, use uh, what we call the analogy of the pyramids to help us understand how people go from having no opinion at all about something to having a very strange and very strong opinion about something and it's as if you're if you don't have a strong opinion about something you're at the tip of a pyramid once you take a, a decision once you say like oh maybe this is an interesting thing to look into or maybe maybe there is something here that I should be studying that's like a step off on one side of the pyramid and and that means that after we've made that initial decision, our brains start justifying um, our decision to ourselves, and and that makes us a little bit more convinced that what we're doing is meaningful. And it also makes our next action in the same direction much more likely. So now I may start spending more time on the thing that I've made a decision about. I may start talking to people about um, my choice, Um, I maybe have a fight with people in my community about this. That makes me even more convinced that I'm right. And each of those actions are driving us down the sides of the pyramid. And the deeper down we go, the more convinced we become. But also, as we are going down the pyramid, we start adding more and more beliefs to our own belief system to hold on to the direction in which we're going. And for him, one of his pyramid moments happened sort of 40, 50 years before we meet him, which are the moments where he starts saying that he's going to be studying the Bible now. He comes from a a Christian Calvinistic background uh, with already sort of a, a set of beliefs and traditions about how you study the Bible. He starts from that position. He says... So he, he basically, he was an engineer. He had trained as an engineer, a civil engineer, had uh, built a lot of the center of Oakland, California, retired as a millionaire at the age of 35, and then said, now I'm going to spend the rest of my life doing what I really am passionate about, which is studying the Bible. Mm. And so when he makes those first decisions, he's not thinking about the end of the world at that time. That just gradually comes along the way. So, somewhere on his 50 year journey, at some point he says, Ah, oh, you know what? There are all these numbers in the Bible here. And, and I, with my number head, I can sort of put them together and create a timeline of the history of mankind. And he does that. He, he creates this calendar of history, which goes all the way from the creation of the earth to the time that we were living. And once he'd been doing that for 10, 20 years, at some point he gets a thought, he says, "Mm, maybe I can also look ahead into the future. And that's his other sort of like defining moment that takes him further down the pyramid. So for all of these belief systems that we look at and that look very strange on the outside, for us as outsiders, there is usually a history where people have gone through this process by which they gradually got into it. And the more they got into it, the stranger their belief starts to look. To take an example that brings us back to our current age in the UK, when people had to decide whether to vote leave or remain in the Brexit referendum, for a lot of them who didn't have a strong opinion about the EU at the time that the referendum came out, they're at the tip of a pyramid. They need to make a decision. For a while, they may say, "Mm, I don't really know which argument to go for. And at some point, they go, you know, based on everything that I've heard so far, I'm going to vote leave, or I'm going to vote remain. And that initial decision that's very tentative in the beginning, that's like a step off on the side of the pyramid. You then start convincing yourself that you're making the right decision, and as our... um, as the referendum debate then developed and the vote happened, and then we've got, we had the sort of the three years following that, you have groups of people forcing themselves down the sides of the pyramid and entrenching themselves either in the state of being an angry remainer or the state of becoming a hard Brexiteer. Because a lot of people who ended up supporting a hard Brexit or dropping out of the EU without a deal, which in the end hasn't happened so far. It still might happen. But those people, when you would have asked them around the date of the referendum, would you be in favor of a no-deal Brexit? Most of them would have said, no, of course we're going to get a deal. But as reality uh, allows them, or or doesn't allow them to, to get that deal that they thought they were going to get, then there's only one way down the pyramid, which is to become a supporter of no deal. Likewise, for someone who tentatively took the Remain stance when they did it, as they are forcing them down themselves down the pyramid, backtracking becomes difficult, and therefore you might find yourself becoming more and more angry at what is happening in the political landscape
0: at that moment. So the, the, So the pyramid concept is you're at the Tip of the pyramid. So, because being a podcast, it's not visual. You're at the tip of the pyramid, and as you go down the pyramid, you're sliding further and further apart to opposite ends of the of this spectrum, as it were. The bottom, bottom of the foot of the pyramid. Ones at the east and ones at the west, as it were. So, completely opposite sides. But the but the point I was thinking as you as you were saying that is, irrespective of what the topic of debate is, whether it's the end of the world, yes, it's going to happen or no, it's not going to happen. Whether it's Brexit, we're going to remain or whether we're going to leave. The argument starts off as a as a rational argument in somebody's mind you're trying to rational say well should we leave should we stay is the world really going to end is it you know whatever you know am i a democrat am i a republican should i believe in you know uh, climate global warming or or is it uh, is it a complete fallacy and then as you take on that belief does that become almost like part of who you are, part of your character, but almost part of your spiritual being, and then you you, you can't let go of it?
1: Yeah, yes, indeed. Uh, you hit the nail on the head there. It, it becomes, the the more important a belief or an opinion becomes to us, the more it becomes part of our identity. And the way that it goes is kind of like, you say to yourself, I wouldn't, I'm a clever person, I wouldn't be holding any beliefs that are wrong." therefore this belief must be right and and that can be or or it can be i'm a good person i wouldn't do anything that would be harmful to other people therefore this is not a harmful belief that i hold this is this is a positive belief for our may 21st believers it was i am um a true believer and and That means that God has allowed me to see these numbers in the Bible. And therefore, it can't be be wrong because we are true believers and God has allowed us to see this. And then when it doesn't happen, it challenges that identity of yourself as a true believer. Similarly to when the Brexit vote went the way it did, 52% of this country were. Feeling very much challenged in their identity of how they felt as Europeans or or as Britain part of Europe, etc., etc.
0: Mm. Is that what we call? Is that what you call? Scientists call cognitive dissonance when you you have a belief and then something comes along to shake that and it doesn't quite fit with your your moral compass or your your intellectual compass.
1: Yes, indeed. So that's that's the so. Psychologists came up with this term, a, a guy called Leon Festinger in the 1950s. He was interested in those days in, in strong opinions. And of course, he was living in the McCarthy era in the US where Joseph McCarthy had been suing everyone uh, or, or holding everyone in front of a, a research committee on, on rooting out po- uh, communists in, in, in American life. And uh, and that was a time of very strong opinion polarization in U.S. in the U.S. and uh, Festinger became interested in that as a scientist and came up with this idea of cognitive dissonance, which meant that if you are being challenged in your belief system, you will feel really bad inside, and that feeling of dread or confusion or uncertainty or challenge to your belief system, that is what wants us then to sort of hunker down and and convince ourselves that we are right that we're not that we're not being stupid or hurtful to other people
0: and is that why we we get into we follow the same twitter feeds the same facebook accounts what we call you know by an, a, an echo chamber for example something where other people are representative of our own views because anyone outside of that is going to make us feel pretty crap
1: yes indeed so it it is really challenging to be exposed to people that we feel are completely wrong and uh to have to maintain a a personal connection with them uh, can be really really difficult in in these days where polarization is growing bigger and bigger
0: and is this made is this situation exacerbated by the advent of the internet and chat well what used to be chat rooms but now Twitter for example is the most obvious one where people express opinion and you said you got slaughtered for your views on uh, on something you said there you know during 911 during so so it certainly aggravates and and speeds things up
1: the psychology our basic psychology hasn't changed that's always been the same so you can look at any time in history where there will have been big fights between groups of people i mean Let's take the the 17th century, where you had the wars between the, the the Catholics and the Protestants, that were ravaging ravaging Europe and and were the most violent times in in our history. So, it, it's not a new thing. The ability for us to be polarized is has always been there, but the internet is speeding it up and is allowing us to be at the same time to find other groups who support our views who tell us who gives us pats on the back and tell us that we are right in our views and at the same time to be exposed to the really horrible things that the guys on the other side are doing and that's often the only messages that that go viral are the ones that fit with your group that fit with the beliefs of your group or the ones that really outrage your group those are the only messages that go viral within, within a certain community. And so either the ones that confirm your beliefs or the ones that make you really angry about how, how inhumane the people are who disagree with you, who are sitting in in another in um, group and have a different belief system. And, and that's certainly the internet has made that worse. The ability for us to be exposed to you the views that we are really disagreeing with in a way that angers us not in a way that helps us understand these people but in a way that angers us
0: let's take a very quick break just to remind you if you love the show and would like to get involved grab some cool stuff get shout outs on the show have us create your very own london legacy show or you meet up with us in london for a coffee or something stronger just head over to www.patreon.com forward slash your london legacy Okay, let's carry on with the show. So why is it today, do you think that there is less trust in what people are, in what our leaders are saying? And for example, we, we're talking, we're in the midst, we're, we're coming out the other side of um, lockdown. COVID 19 and that's impacted all our lives. Otherwise, I wouldn't be, I'd be face to face with you in your, uh, your place of work. But now we're, we're face to face over this dodgy internet, <laughs> internet connection. But every day we were watching Boris and his, you know, right hand person, Matt Hancock, or his scientists on either side of him. And yet he was, he was trying to put across a view. He had strong beliefs in his views. And yet you had the, The journalists and the public coming on basically one after the other trying to slaughter him and rightly or wrongly i'm not taking a a side here for his views and the views of the scientists and trying to say you are wrong and i i noticed and my father who as well said why are they being so vehemently aggressive towards his points of view journalists never used to be like that what is it that they are trying to achieve today and is it they're trying to to, to take a polarizing view to, to try and go viral and sell papers and sell an opinion?
1: Yeah, I think so. So someone like Boris Johnson has, of course, already polarized people to an enormous degree by the time COVID comes along. And COVID itself was a, 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 a neutral issue at the beginning. So So... Whenever something new enters our state of being, uh, our understanding of the world, we don't have strong opinions about it. So when COVID comes onto the scene at uh, sort of the end of January, it starts popping up on people's radars maybe a little bit earlier, and and when it really enters in the UK in March, most of us don't have a strong opinion either about COVID or about how to deal with it. So we're not polarized with regards to the issue. But of course, we, a lot of us were polarized with regards to Johnson. Either we really love him or we really hate him. And then that means that if you're a journalist trying to write for that audience, that either of lovers or haters, you will be driven by a certain sense of wanting to speak to your audience. That is, That's what happens in a polarized society. You cannot speak to everyone anymore. You can only speak to a part of the audience that you cater for because they're thinking in the ways that you're thinking. And you can craft messages that resonate with them. And you can craft messages that get them outraged. But you can't do the same for all of us at the same time. Now, in the beginning, as COVID itself was not polarizing... We could do that around COVID, and, and we have. The UK successfully, in the first couple of months, avoided polarization around about COVID by framing it in terms of saving the NHS. Because the one thing that binds everyone across the UK together is the NHS. It's the closest that um, the UK has to an organized religion, is, is what I've heard someone say. So framing COVID in Save lives, Save NHS worked to get the vast majority of people on board with the drastic measures that we took at the start of March, but, or in the middle of March. But of course, now, as time progresses, there is more fracturing happening of that original consensus that existed. And, and that is in part driven by either your support for Johnson or your dislike of Johnson. As well as all the other things that were either in favour of or against.
0: So what he was doing right at the beginning was um, save lives, you know, support the NHS, save lives, whatever. I can't remember what the message was now, but so many messages. That was a specifically designed message to get a coalesce people's views right across the political spectrum, in the same way that what, what was it Brexit? Let's get it done, you know. Come on, guys! Let's just sort this. Let's get it done. So the, these are specifically designed concepts to to get a broad consensus rather I, than polarized views.
1: Yeah. So I I don't think that get Brexit done would have had the same support across the the board because of course lots of people were really upset by it, that particular message, but uh, at at least it would have but, been. But an attempt- but it,
0: it, was, it was it was it was broad enough to say to his supporters. He wanted to get Brexit done. Okay, come on, break. You know we're we behind you. And to other people who were wavering, oh for God's sake, let's just finish this once once and for all. I'm sick and tired of this. Yeah. So so we so it, it moves enough. It moves the needle enough, as it obviously did in the election.
1: Yes. Yes. Absolutely. So so that was true. It got him uh, the, the the big majority that it has today. The NHS one was. I I don't know how well these are how much people who come up with these slogans are aware of how much that binds together or polarizes or whatever. I, I think often they are implicitly aware of the psychology and the neuroscience behind it rather than explicitly knowing the, the theories that sit behind it. But at least uh, the NHS, the um, save lives, save the NHS, or stay at home, save lives, stay, save the NHS. That was the one. That worked soon forgotten. <laughs> yeah, soon forgotten. But it worked at that time uh, it did, because it yeah. brought everyone together in, in in the UK at least. In the US, they didn't find that message, and COVID was or the response to COVID was framed there as a choice between saving lives or saving the economy, and that immediately polarized across left right uh, political lines. And we can see what a mess it generated in, in that it didn't get the whole of society behind one strategy for long enough to, to flatten the curve. It is still yeah, going on there really because it splits society, and, and you got that enormous fragmentation of approaches in different states, in different cities. Mask wearing yes, no. Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Is it patriotic, unpatriotic? etc
0: so. yeah it's fascinating because of course as you say the nhs goes right across our our um, our country both physically and in the in our psyche as well whereas in america they've got all the different federal states they haven't got the nhs so and they've and, and trump himself is a very polarizing personality in just about every facet you can possibly imagine yeah so how do we how do we bridge this divide? I mean, this is I know this is something you, you you've been working on, and I think um, they, so tell us about your um, the justice syndicate, justice the, syndicate. The I justice beg your pardon, syndicate. the justice syndicate. Yeah, so the tell justice... us a little bit about that and how how working together can sort of coalesce ideas and people's views.
1: Yeah, so the justice syndicate is is another project that I embarked on together with uh, interactive theatre makers. And it was to give people an experience of how we disagree with one another. It's basically a, a theatre play without actors. Everyone who takes part in it is, an, is, is basically the actors. And uh, it's set up as a jury um, play where you enter a room, you all get a tablet. On that tablet, you get evidence of a court case. And at certain mom- moments, you're being asked to vote. And the further you get into the evidence, the more time there is for group discussions. What we thought would happen, because it is a very difficult case with conflicting evidence, not unrealistic, lots of people who've taken part in jury trials have told us that it's very realistic in in how ambiguous the evidence is. But because it is ambiguous, people start lurching towards opposing opinions, whether the the accused is guilty or not guilty. It's a simple yes-no decision at that moment. And, And so what we see is sometimes we see entire groups of people agreeing that he's guilty. Sometimes we see entire groups of people agreeing that he's not guilty. And on other occasions, we see the group split in the middle and you've then got sort of a guilty and a not guilty camp forming that entrenches itself and they start fighting with each other.
0: Now, one of so the this, reasons- is this this these are different groups of people on the same set of facts?
1: Yes, exactly. So it's always the same uh, evidence that you see, the same facts in the same order, nothing different. The only thing that you have different is that you're sitting around the table with a different group of people. And so we've we've got then these situations where there is consensus on either side, either guilt or not guilt. And in some situations, we have very strong disagreements. But what is very uh, sort of eye-opening for people after they've taken part in it, we usually do a little debrief talk where we take them through some of the psychology that sits baked into the play. And as part of the debrief, often people start to realize, you know, maybe... It wasn't as clear-cut, a guilty or a not guilty case as I thought it was. And maybe had I been part of a different group, I would have actually come to a different conclusion than I have come to now. And that is one of the ways that we're trying to give people new ways of thinking about the deep disagreements that we have about important issues in society to help us understand how and why we're coming to these very strong opinions as a means to have better conversations with people who hold different opinions from ourselves. Um, that's one way that we're trying to um, sort of equip society better to deal with these deep disagreements. Another way that I see as a way forward to deal with disagreements is that if you are strongly of a strong opinion on a particular issue. Let's say you are at the bottom of the pyramid with regards to Brexit, either you're a committed lever or a committed remainer. Then, as long as that problem remains there, that pyramid is there and you're convinced on your side and other people are convinced on their side. And often you cannot resolve that issue itself. You cannot, I cannot change my position very much. And you might not be able to change your position very much if you are very entrenched in your views. But what we can do is we can find um, common ground on other issues, issues that we're not polarized on. And common ground is not middle ground. It's not the middle between your position and my position on Brexit or on immigration or on taxation or on politics. Common ground is things where... We do have shared understanding and shared experiences and for and we've already mentioned one before, the NHS in the UK is often what can generate common ground between people in, in the UK. Of course it doesn't work for people in other nations. You, every culture, every group of people has their own um, issues around which you can build, common ground where, where people can find each other and find out that actually we're human beings that are driven by very similar wishes which is uh, the wish to do good for for people around us
0: that 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 sounds wonderful in in theory obviously <laughs> i mean in in practice when you have such such dramatic and life-changing scenarios such as historically the irish problem or, you know, what's going on in the Middle East, for example, and you have such divergence of opinions, which are entrenched in centuries old, quite often religious beliefs, which, as we went back to what we said before, is not just what you believe in theory, but what actually becomes who you are and how you define yourself. Finding, it's not what you say the middle ground, but it's finding things in common that are going to bridge that gap. Where, where do you even start there? Do you, do you find things in common outside of the, the 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 main argument? Just to sort of get some some consensus to start with, could be anything. I don't know. Consensus over you both enjoy a cup of coffee. or both support the same football team. I, I don't know. Is it something as banal as that?
1: Yeah, it it uh, it could be, or it could be kids. Like lots of people of the age where they have kids could uh, relate to each other on on their children or their families things that we care about but that aren't necessarily the things that we're divided on. You mentioned the uh, Northern Irish question. I'm aware of a program that existed um from I think in the 1970s or 1980s onwards where uh, sort of a, a a peace negotiator started to work with both sides and in the beginning he wanted to bring Protestants and Catholics in in contact with one another and In the beginning, they didn't want to speak to each other. They didn't want to meet. He couldn't get them to meet inside Northern Ireland. So what he ended up doing is he flew them on separate planes to the US. And the first meetings they had were meetings behind screens where they couldn't see each other. Mm -hmm. And that was just to start building these first contacts and, and getting them to find a little bit of common ground before then really trying to forge stronger connections between them and it took many many years and it took lots of effort but that kind of that effort that started i think in the 70s or 80s then led to the good friday agreements being possible two decades later it's not that they directly led to the good friday agreements but you with The sectarian uh, split so wide as it was in the 1970s, you couldn't even bring people together in a face-to-face contact because our prejudices, our stereotypes about the other side are so deep that we can't see them as humans at that moment. And it's, it's only by whittling away very slowly at that idea that the other person isn't human, that then you can start that process of looking for common ground together. And, and then we know what it did lead to In by the late 90s. It did lead to the possibility to come together and to negotiate a peace. And we've seen the positive things that have come out of that then for the next 15 years. So it, it's, it will be the, the deeper the disagreement, the more difficult the reconciliation is. But even in the most divided situations, there is reconciliation possible.
0: So it's the the little building blocks of trust, I suppose, which is the starting point for all consensus uh, and de, if there's such a word, depolarizing of, of views and mm-hmm. as you say, seeing each other as a human being, not as a not as a mad, mad axeman <laughs> yes. because if if you if you go to these polarized positions, it does inevitably lead in many situations to to bloodshed and violence, as we see consistently around the world whether they're political views or religious views. Mm -hmm. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah, no, I like to call that stupid, crazy, evil reasoning. So as you descend down your sides of the pyramid, the further you grow apart from each other, the wider the base becomes, the more you need to see the other person as either idiots, they're too stupid to understand what I know, Or they're uh, mad. They, yeah, they're mad. They're crazy. They will never understand what I know. Or they're evil, which is they know what I know, but for their own benefits, they're saying the opposite. And then, of course, then it becomes possible to start committing violence against people. And luckily, in our Western society, it hasn't gone that far yet, but it's not beyond. The realm of the possible—that some of these things that are happening, especially in the U.S. right now, um, where polarization is stronger than in the U.K., that that is going to lead to more widespread violence than what we've been seeing so far. So there is already stuff happening in the in the, the sort of the fights around the white supremacy rallies and Black Lives Matters. Sometimes there is violence yeah. breaking out there. Who knows where that can go to if if we don't stop, if we don't stem that, that increasing polarization.
0: You, you mentioned it in one of your, uh, an article you wrote for The Guardian uh, was written about uh, your justice syndicate um, in The Guardian. You spoke about um, Anna Subri, who took a, a, a view. And she when you know, getting close to being violently attacked as she was pursued into the Houses of Parliament, being shouted at as fascist and scumbag. You know, and that could easily have broken out into uh it was very close to becoming violent, wasn't it? Over was just mm-hmm. yeah a difference of political opinion basically yes you know she yes. was just going about her lawful business, yeah. so violence is never far away when you you were that opposed in in views diametrically opposed mm-hmm. so I mean are you optimistic for the for the future of of breaking down barriers of different views i'm I'm
1: optimistic in a sense that we've never been in a better position to deal with it non-violently. We've often been in positions where we did become polarized. In the past, it often was across either religious or national boundaries. So in the run-up to World War One, in the run-up to World War II, polarization was growing, but it was between the Germans and the French, or the Germans and the English. And And then that led to war. In the US, it was the American Civil War in the 1860s, polarization between two groups that led to war. I'm optimistic in the sense that we're now in a position where we can deal with it differently than we have in the past. Whether we're gonna manage in practice, I am not sure. We could descend back into decreasing chaos, then decreasing violence. But I'm hopeful that at least for the first time in history, we do have tools to think about this differently. And a lot of this came from um, the the social psychologists from the 1950s, who often were people, Jews who had fled from the Holocaust, from Germany and Europe to the Americas, to, to the US, and who had... Mm-hmm. based on their own experience, that we need to understand what led to this. And so a lot of the early social psychologists from those days are people with experience of that type of violence coming out of polarization and hatred. And they started all these research programs that now can help us understand how to deal with the polarization
0: such that it doesn't erupt into violence. Mm. And that's why I'm a little bit optimistic. So- so you're a little bit optimistic it, it, and it's all very well with greatest respect to the wonderful work that you and your your colleagues do you guys understanding the need for it but that this that it, it requires a different way of thinking and teaching us how to think and approach thought processes and, and and debate differently and presumably that can only happen if we're taught that process i assume in schools and in the home otherwise if we don't know how to think differently we're gonna carry on exactly as we always have done.
1: Yes, absolutely. And therefore it is important for these things to get into schools and we are working on that. One of the projects that I did with um, the theater makers behind uh, the Justice Syndicate was targeted at uh, teenagers, uh, 14, 15 year olds. Um, So we are working on that aspect. But there is also a lot of material out there already. So you can watch our film right between your ears. It's on Amazon UK and it's on on the website rightbetween.com. You can see it there. You can also read books about this. The, two of the psychologists in our film have a wonderful book called Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me. And it's about our ab- inability oh, to, <laughs>
0: to deal
1: with our own mistakes. And it's a brilliant book. And It's and a and book it's, we
0: all should have written. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> yes, indeed, indeed. And so, so the material is out there, but it's just to make it count, to make it matter to people, to translate it into so many different stories and so many different ways that it starts to really shift how we are thinking about ourselves and our own feeling of righteousness that we have
0: yeah because people always think we've always think we've got to take a view we've got to take a stance we've got to be left we've got to be right we've got to be right we've got to be wrong we've got to support spurs or arsenal we've got to you know we, you know you got to be labor or conservative you don't have to be either or you can mm. have a view that blends across all of all of the spectrums and still be not right but you can not necessarily be wrong or ir- be irrational in your thinking and i think that's a lesson that you know, hopefully you're going to get out there more and more. And it's important that we teach our kids how to have a, a rational conversation that embodies all all different types of, um all spectrums of uh thought process. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's a fascinating area. I'm jealous that you work here. I mean, what is a typical day? What does a typical day of yours look like? Just walk us through that briefly, if you will.
1: Wow. Okay. So <laughs> some of the more salacious Things that it exposes me to is that sometimes I feel the professional need to go and seek out opinions that very strongly oppose my own. And that means that I find myself sometimes going through the comments of Breitbart, which is this right-wing American journalism platform. It's, it's, it's like a website a news website basically. And and so I sometimes find myself trudging through the comment section on Breitbart to Help me understand how people are seeing the issue from the other side of the argument. When Trump does something that outrages me, I want to think like, I want to know how is it that other people see this. And it's sometimes, well, it's almost always night and day. And I was actually just an, an hour before we started this call, I was on Breitbart because... Yeah, it was the news that Trump had started wearing a mask and had tweeted about that it was patriotic <laughs> to wear a mask. And so I wanted yeah, to which know... He said,
0: which he said he would never do.
1: Which he said he'd never do. So he changed his, his position because he knows that it's not a... pop. Uh-huh. He, he, the polling tells him it's not popular, so he changes his position. But I wanted to see how they're responding to it. I didn't find the article that talks about it because probably Breitbart isn't interested in writing about it but i i was then reading other articles about black lives matter and the kneeling during the anthem and and the way that people see this entirely differently if you are in this other parallel universe where none of the beliefs that we have or that i have are being held by people in that in that other parallel universe about that particular thing so they see it as a as an insult to America is an insult to the most freest uh, and 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 best nation in the world. That's how they perceive it. Whereas, of course, it's not meant like that by any of the people who are doing that kneeling uh, during the American anthem. Uh, but it is perceived like that on the other side of the argument. So,
0: so you spend a lot of your time looking for uh, polarised views, I suppose, <laughs> possibly irras- wholly irrational opinions and trying to see why those views are formed and how how you can bridge them?
1: Yes, but the amazing thing is that if you go through their arguments, you can see how they are also making arguments of rationality. They are saying our arguments are the rational one, our positions are the rational one, and these Democrats with their positions, it's completely they're completely mad, they're, they're irrational. That type of language that we use to talk about their beliefs, they are also using that to talk about our beliefs, basically. And, and that's, the, that's the thing that time after time absolutely flabbergasts me, that we can be constructing our own sense of rightness in with the exact same language. And, and maybe that's the thing we've got in common more than anything else, is that we are using the same language in defense of our own sense of righteousness that we have with respect to all of these issues. I'm the rational one. You're the irrational one.
0: If only we could just calmly take a step back and take an aerial view of the uh, the conversation and the debate and the argument, look down on it with some degree of uh, rationality and proportionality, and say, maybe, maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, maybe he's got a view or she's got a view on that point, and just yeah. calmly, calmly think about it.
1: Can I, I, I'd i like to qualify that little a little <laughs> bit. For me,
0: it's, it's not so
1: much about the rationality of the arguments because we can construct rational arguments on either side of the debate and, and they'll look very rational when we're standing in the middle of it and at the ends of it, there might be lots of fraying of the rationality but, but we can all convince ourselves that we're holding a rational view. But what I would like us to be able to do is to have compassion for each other to that aerial view to look down at our differences of of opinion with compassion. And that's not necessarily agreement. That doesn't imply agreement. I don't need to necessarily agree with your way of thinking, but we could have compassion for each other and for the way that we've driven ourselves into a corner where we feel that our position is the only right one. And with that stronger sympathy and compassion, we might be able to start having conversations that don't end up in shouting
0: matches. Isn't it ironic that a good proportion of the world's problems today are religious-based, religion-based arguments, uh, fundamental arguments, and yet most religions will claim to be compassionate and have sympathy and be caring so why isn't this sympathy and caring and empathy imbued in 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 the debate somehow more why doesn't that take more priority
1: that's a really deep
0: question I'm, 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 that's a rhetorical question I, i'm not I'm, yeah. I, I'm not expecting an answer <laughs> i wouldn't know question. how to answer it i wouldn't know how
1: to answer it so. <laughs>
0: no well i think on that on that on that point it, uh, it's a fascinating area. I, I'm dead jealous. I wish I was doing your job. It's, it's just absolutely brilliant. And I, I love it's, it's, I've really enjoyed this conversation. And I'm mindful of taking up too much of your time. I could go on for hours. So, before we wrap up, how can people find out more about you and get in contact with you and um, more about your work?
1: I've got a website, chrisdemeyer.com. Uh, you can contact me there. I'm on Twitter, uh, chris 8 uh, 8 as in the number. Um, and uh, the film is on rightbetween.com. Right Between Your Ears is on rightbetween.com. You can get in contact in any of those ways. If you just Google my name, you'll find an email address on the King's website. So lots of different ways to get in touch.
0: And there's also a very good, uh, wonderful TED talk you did. Was it last year for TEDx yes, London?
1: In, yeah, it was about a year ago. So um, TEDx, uh, the genie of polarization is the title of the TEDx
0: talk. Yeah, that might be a good starting point actually, because it's relatively short. It's only about thirteen, fourteen minutes, and it's 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 very good. You did very well there. Were, were, was that were you nervous doing that?
1: I I was of course a little bit nervous, but they make you practice so much in advance. It, before taking part in this, I didn't know that. I thought it was just old people at libbing but of course no. It is you need to write out every word you're saying, and you're expected to not deviate from your script. Um, and then they help you practice a lot. So yeah.
0: The well, you, you you nailed it, and obviously you're you're a you're a master of your uh your topic, so uh, you, you did very well. It was it's brilliant. So I, I would guide people to that as well. So that's been brilliant. It's been an absolute pleasure. Now, with all my guests, as I as I mentioned before we started, before we went live, I ask all my guests to mention one or two places in London, because this is after all your London legacy. Uh, a couple of places in London that are particularly personal to you, for whatever reason, it could be a walk, a pub, a bar, a restaurant, whatever. Have you managed to uh, give it any consideration? Have you got a couple of places for us?
1: Yes, I do. So the, um, the central part of King's College London is the Strand campus. And when I came to King's in 2004, I was very privileged to be given an office that looked over the river, over the Thames. So the Strand building starts from uh, the Strand, which is the, the part of Oldwich, that half moon, uh, in the centre of London, but then runs all the way to the, the Thames. And my office, at one point, was the closest to the central part of London, to the centre of London, the geographic centre of London. Some people had calculated where is the geographic centre of London, and it proved to be just right in front of my desk for the years that I was sitting there. Oh. Then I moved <laughs> away to another desk. Wonderful. So that, that part, uh, Somerset House is there with a wonderful square, where usually there is, like, fountains running. You've got a terrace overlooking the Thames. It's a place really dear to my heart. Now, King's has also taken over Oldwich uh, and Bush House, which the, where the BBC World Service used to be. They've taken that over as well. It's also really lovely. Another part that I really like is Coram's Fields in the Bloomsbury area. Um, it's basically a, a place where... There's the Foundling Museum is there, which is the place where people would go and drop off babies they didn't want uh, and leave them at the orphanage. And there's a playground there on the playground. It says no adults allowed without children or it's actually a whole park. And you're not allowed to go in as an adult unless you've got a kid with you. So it's a very child friendly place. The Foundling Museum is really cute to visit and... It's another area where I used to spend a lot of time. In the cafe of the Founding Museum, I did a lot of my work there about five to 10 years ago.
0: Two wonderful places. Uh, perfect, we haven't had either of those before. So I'm, I'm grateful to you for choosing two unusual places. And had we not been in lockdown, uh, no doubt we'd have probably met at one of those two to do the recording, but uh, yeah. as it is, we're 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 in our respective, um, uh, I guess you're at home. I'm in mm-hmm. my, uh, my home office. Once again, thank you ever so much, Chris. It's been a real pleasure, fascinating topic. I hope people got some something something from it and they can follow up with you um, through any of those those memes that uh, that you suggested. Thank you. So, uh, that's absolutely great. Thanks for your time, much appreciated. Thank you very much. I absolutely love creating your London legacy for you and the feedback and testimonials are awesome. But as it grows, so it consumes more and more resources. So I've joined forces with Patreon a really cool place where you can show your love and support from just as little as two dollars a month as a silver londoner right up to three hundred dollars per month where you get the crown jewels each level of subscription opens up a host of exclusive extra goodies events bonus shows and sponsorship opportunities only available via via patreon i do hope you'll continue to support what we're doing here i'm so grateful for whatever you feel able to give so please head over to www.patreon.com forward slash London legacy. That's www.patreon.com forward slash London legacy.